Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, the fourth gospel, fourth book of the New Testament. As you're finding that, I have an encouragement and an exhortation for you. First, an encouragement. Just praise the Lord. It's wonderful to see since the beginning of the year just more and more of you joining us here in gathered worship. And as I say that, just a greeting to those that are still at home and joining us online. Uh, Whatever your circumstances are, I just encourage you to fight for connection to the local church. Church is essential. Gathering with other believers is essential, and it's just good to see more and more of you with us every Sunday morning. And then just an exhortation. Robert mentioned that we have a member meeting tonight, and generally we have these meetings six times a year. Uh, We have one tonight, and this is a meeting where members of the church are encouraged to come. If you're you're not a member, you're also, but you're thinking about Crosspoint and wanting to get more of a feel for us, you're welcome to come to the meeting as well. But this is six times a year we have these meetings, and we meet to do some really important things. We're going to vote on elder candidates uh, tonight. We're going to hear a financial update. I'm going to give just a brief encouragement to the church about navigating these uncertain times culturally and politically, and it's important for you to come. Now, just a pastoral word. Um, We've been a church for 15 years. We started this church, well, it'll be 16 years this April. Uh, These meetings have been historically very poorly attended by the members, and I just don't know why. Uh, I don't know if we're just not doing a good enough job explaining it, and that's possible. I'm open to critique and criticism. Maybe part of it's just apathy on your part. And this goes long before kind of this pandemic when people are concerned about coming out, just even way before this. So dear ones, I'm just, I'm just asking you to come if you're a member of the church. I'm asking you to come and participate in the life of the church and to be part of it, to take part in some really important congregational decisions and things that we need to do. This is how you stay connected. So um, I'll fall on my sword and I'll email me and let me know how we can do better, whatever. But listen, sometimes, you know, everything can't be exciting and awesome. Sometimes you gotta gotta eat your vegetables, you know? Like sometimes mom makes broccoli and you gotta eat it and it's good for you. And these member meetings are good for us too. So you hear my heart on that? I love you, Crosspoint. All right, let's get that out of the way. Let's get into the word. We're journeying through, this is our second message, through what promises to be a, a sustained and long journey through the Gospel of John. We're in the prologue, the middle of the first 18 verses, which is an introduction by John to the rest of the book. So the first 18 verses are really different from the rest of the, the Gospel according to John. It's a kind of setup of all of his major themes, and, and this morning we're going to look at verses 6 through 13. I think I have two truths, two, two sort of categories that I want to break this passage down in, and it's, it's truths about gospel ministry, and then it's truths about salvation. But first, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll unpack this together. Father, thank you for your grace to us that we can gather. Thank you for the rain. May it be a symbol, as the rain waters the earth, may it be a symbol of how your word has come down to water our souls. Isaiah the prophet says that your word shall not return void. May it be so this morning. Draw our attention to your word this morning. Show us wonderful things from your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read verses six through eight first, and then we'll stop and consider some truths about gospel ministry. John, the apostle, writes, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, this is John writing this, John the apostle, and when he mentions John here, he's talking about another John, John the Baptist, so just to kind of orient you to 
the characters here in this scene. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So in these three verses here, I think we see some some really important truths just about gospel ministry in general. So John the Apostle, the writer of this gospel, is writing about the ministry of John the Baptist, which we're gonna read a little bit more about at the end of chapter one. And in the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we, we hear a little bit more about John's ministry and even the events surrounding John's birth and how when John was a baby, when John the Baptist was a baby in the womb, he leapt in his mother's womb. So there's this calling on the ministry of John the Baptist and he becomes a kind of picture, not just for his ministry, but, but really for all of gospel ministry here in these few verses. He, in a sense, is, think of him this way. Even though John the Baptist, his life and ministry occurs or happens or is recorded for us in what we know of as the New Testament, in a sense we can kind of think of him as the last Old Testament prophet. This line of men that God raised up in the nation of Israel to shadow, to point towards Christ. Now John is the last in the line of those. He's this, in fact, he's the, the biological cousin of Jesus and he is pointing towards, he's the last one. He's like the end of the road pointing towards the one that is coming and that's the ministry of John the Baptist. But there's, there's a few things that I want us to see in John's ministry that's described here in verses six through eight that become kind of a model for us about what it means to be a minister of the gospel just as an ordinary Christian in a local church. First, John's ministry and all gospel ministry is to be Christ-centered, is to point towards Jesus. John was sent by God to point to the person and the work of Jesus. Notice what he says there, that he, he is a, he's not the light, but he's sent to bear witness about the light. So gospel ministry is to be gospel-centered or Christ-centered. Now what does this practically mean? Because nobody would disagree with the fact that ministry should be Christ-centered. It's a way, what do we mean by that? What I mean by that is it's a way of looking at the Bible, it's a way, it's an ethos, it's a culture of church life together and the Christian life where we see everything through the lens of what God has done through his son to reconcile people to himself. So when we come to the Bible, we don't come to it primarily as a, as a kind of book that gives us moral principles on how to live. Certainly it does that, and I don't mean to diminish that at all. But all of that means nothing unless it is filtered through and rooted in and grounded upon what God has done through his son in his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection, and his victorious ascension over all of the universe. It is all pointing to Jesus. And all gospel ministry should center on what God has done in his son Christ. So just an important side note before we move on to the the second note that we see in John's ministry is just, just beware of churches and preachers that subtly, maybe even subconsciously, maybe even in, in, in an unaware sort of way, make ministry or the life of the church about themselves or some sort of other thing. That, that's a dangerous thing and I think it's very subtle and quite frankly I think, I think the landscape of churches across our culture is full of churches like that. And there is a subtle tug on every preacher's heart to sort of come across as clever or witty or deep or whatever. And friends, I know that tug. And it, it, can, it can undermine the Christ-centeredness of the life of a church. And one of the reasons I like to contrast this, not, not to be just some sort of grumpy guy, because I, I love the work that God is doing in many other faithful churches. But one of the reasons that I 
I feel a burden to often contrast a biblical picture of ministry with what often goes on in our culture is because this church has a kind of ministry of transition. Many people come through this church, primarily through the military, and after three or four years, they move on. And so many of you are gonna be looking for another church soon, and I wanna sort of build your discernment. I wanna give you a kind of nose to smell out these things. And if a preacher's trying to be cute or if people are putting a lot of, of, of effort into kind of relevance and being attractive to a fallen world, that's generally a negative sign. It means that they are relying more on connecting with people culturally than they are on holding up Christ. And that's an important aspect of faithful gospel ministry. Secondly, John's ministry was word-centered. And I think that's bound up in this word witness. It says, verse seven, that he came as a witness. He came to speak to, to bear witness about the light. And of course, we know from last week that that light clearly is Christ, that all might believe through him. So what does it mean to be a witness? Well, the whole Old Testament, and remember, we just said a moment ago that in a sense, John is a kind of last Old Testament prophet, and so he's not just coming, just sort of giving his thoughts, he's giving God's thoughts about Jesus. It's a witness, a spoken word about Christ. Listen to what John the Apostle says in John chapter five, as he records Jesus speaking to the Pharisees of his day. Listen to what Jesus says, really about the whole Old Testament, and in a sense, about John the Baptist's ministry. John five, verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness. They point to, it's a word spoken. They bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And so a, a gospel ministry, according to the model of John here, is not only centered on the person and work of Christ, but we know that because the word teaches us so, just some clear implications of this, is that we, we think that a gospel-centered, a faithful biblical ministry is a ministry built on the word of God, that all of our teaching, our preaching, should be based on the word of God. One of the ways that we practically try and do that here is through the discipline or the practice of what we call expositional preaching, where we just work through books of the Bible, and this word expositional simply means that we are trying to expose ourselves to the message of the word of God. So, the point of the sermon should be the point of the passage that we're working through, as opposed to, uh, a, a dominant, uh, pr- pretty much the dominant model of, of teaching sometimes in churches is a kind of topical, always talking about something, starting with an issue, whatever it may be, as valid as it may be, and then gathering a bunch of Bible verses around that issue and trying to explain it. Now, that has its place, and occasionally we do it here, but we think that the vast majority of the way that a word-centered witness of the person and work of Christ is just taking what the Holy Spirit has inspired and how the Holy Spirit has arranged it and just working through books of the Bible. We think that's better, we think it's faithful, and we think although there's no verse in the Bible that says do it this way, we think it's just kind of practical general wisdom about how to best feed our souls. And so that's a value that that we have here. And then just practically, all of that is wonderful. But we talked about this in the first Sunday of the year about living by God's word is this must be supplemented. This must, dear ones, hear me. This must be supplemented by your own personal daily Bible reading. Now fight for this, dear ones. It's the end of January and surely some of you decided to start a Bible reading plan. Maybe the one that we're doing, the, the five day a week Bible reading plan that gives you a break on weekends and already you're behind. Right now, you had, now, right now you're, at a, you're at a critical moment. What will you do? Ah, well, maybe next year. No. Come on, pick back up. Just forget, here's just a tip. Let me just give you, let me just issue an edict from, from Brad, which means absolutely nothing. Just p- pick up in Exodus chapter one tomorrow. Forget about those chapters you skipped in Genesis. Pick up tomorrow and start reading. Pick up in Galatians, which is where this, we are. Pick up and start 
reading. That what's more important is you developing a daily habit than you being able to check boxes. Dear ones, fight, fight to take in the Bible. So it's a word center ministry. And then thirdly, the goal, the goal of ministry, gospel ministry, is that all might believe through Christ. Look at the end of verse seven. He says he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. In other words, that all might trust in Jesus. Now there's lots of discussion that goes on almost constantly in our culture about the purpose and the mission of the church. But we exist clearly, if we just read the Bible, we exist to glorify God, to build up the body, and to evangelize the lost. That's why the church exists. That's the biblical picture of ministry. And so we are here, if you're a Christian, you are here, you're part of this church, and we exist not for ourselves but to be used by God so that he would bring through our sanctification, through our life together, he might bring salvation to others through our corporate life together. That's why we exist, that God would use us. He would be so kind as to use us, a church with all sorts of limitations, with all sorts of people who are on all sorts of spectrum of their maturity in Christ, with lights that disguise themselves as speakers occasionally, apparently that he would use us with all of our inadequacies, with all of the things that we could be doing better, me and you included, that he would use us so that some in this area and the people that we're connected to might know Jesus. What else really matters? I mean, People are buying stocks, all this stuff about whatever, GameStop. I mean, come on. On some level, it's important. But there is a kind of seduction of the tyranny of the urgent news of the hour that will make Christians think that some social issue is more important than the mission of the kingdom of God through ordinary ordinary churches like us. And that's what we're here for, friends. What a, what a joy. What a joy. In fact, this has been God's plan. I mean, even at the beginning of the Bible, he says to Abraham in Genesis 12, he says, Abe, I am going to make a people through you, but this people isn't going to exist for themselves. This people is going to be a people through whom I am going to bless all the peoples of the earth. And essentially, Jesus repeats that in Matthew chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount when he says to Christians that you, in the context of a local church, are to be a city set on a hill. That doesn't mean that we are to separate ourselves from the world and look down the end of our noses to them, but that we are to be a kind of shining light that will cause, that God would use the way that we interact with and love one another to be a means which accomplishes exactly what John the Baptist is called to do here, to shine the light on Christ so that all might believe in him. That's the goal of the church. And what a privilege it is to be part of that. Listen to how Paul describes the church in 1 Timothy 3 verse 15. He says that, that this is the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So we're holding something up so that all the world can see it. And that's, that's gospel ministry. Now, you might think, well, Brad, we, I agree with that. But what does this look like for the average Christian? Because our minds instinctively go to some sort of public, stage-oriented expression of this ministry. But I I think if that's the only thing we think about, when we think about lifting up Christ, we miss, in fact, really the thrust of the Christian life in the New Testament. So what what does it look like to be like John and bear witness about the light so that all might believe in our average, ordinary lives for just the average Christian? I think about where you work 
and that God has put you in that specific place with those specific people, maybe not to be a public preacher, but to leverage, to leverage your relationships so that the way that we comport ourselves around unbelievers, it becomes, like John, a sign. We're sent as a witness to point towards something beyond just temporary conversations about everyday life. That's a great privilege. You, we're all, in a sense, sent as missionaries to our work. I think about young mothers that are staying at home with their children, and to think about you, dear sister, have been sent as a missionary to that little heathen that God has given you. I mean, you understand that theologically, right? People are not born Christians. People are born dead in sin. We're gonna get to that in just a moment. But God gave you a little reprobate sinner to evangelize. And what a privilege. So you may read this and you say, wow, John the, John the Baptist, you know, he was this man sold out for the Lord, pointing people to Jesus. How does this apply to me? Oh, dear mother, in a sense, you are a kind of present-day John the Baptist as a voice crying in the wilderness to your little child. What a privilege. What a privilege. What a noble calling. You, dear businessman, you platoon sergeant, you young private, you team leader, you are a witness, a voice crying in the wilderness to that dark place. All of us in various aspects of our lives are to embody this type of ministry that John the Baptist models for us. And then just even practically, let's not talk about just being in the world, just practically in the life of the local church that by the way we live and love and bear and are sweet and compassionate and understanding and forgiving towards one another, the way that we love one another in the local church, the way that we prioritize gathering, the way that we prioritize serving one another, the way that we prioritize actually being accountable for one another as local Christians, all of that, dear ones, what it does is it makes the church a kind of pot of soil that is built up with gospel community nutrients and it's well watered and that's the type of place that bears fruit. It smells a certain way to an onlooking world and just by being an ordinary, sweet, other-centered, loving Christian in a local church, you in a sense are bearing witness about the light because you're part of a place that is shining the light of the gospel. Oh, dear friends, what a privilege to do that. What a privilege. So let's, let's, let's live this way. Let's let this scripture point us in this way. Secondly, truths about salvation. So those are truths about gospel ministry, truths about salvation. Let me read verses nine through 13. Paul said, or John says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, so now he's talking about Jesus. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Oh, this is a glorious passage. So a few truths about salvation that we see in these few verses. First is that, now follow me, I'm gonna explain this more fully in just a second, but common grace is not saving grace. What do I mean by that? In verses nine and 10, he says that this true light, Jesus, gives light to everyone. And I think clearly the context there is everyone in the world. He was coming into the world. In fact, it qualifies it there at the end of verse nine. So this light is going to all of us. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So common grace is not saving grace. What do I mean by common grace? Common grace is the grace that God gives all of creation, irrespective of whether or not those people are his people, believers or not. 
The Bible says, and several times in the Gospels, Jesus says this, that the rain falls, meaning the blessing of the Lord, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. The sun rises on the righteous and the wicked. God is gracious to all of creation in a sense. But God's common grace of his gift to all of creation is not the particular grace that God exercises when he opens up a human heart and draws it to himself. But in a sense, all of the world, every creature, every human being, in a sense, is endowed with given a kind of sense, even if they're not aware of its source, they have a sense of right and wrong. And that's part of God's common grace. In fact, Romans chapter two, when Paul is really laying out his argument, indicting all of humanity, both Jew and Gentile, Paul points to this very thing, that there's this, this law, a kind of natural law, that's written on the heart of every human being, so nobody is without excuse. So he says in Romans two, verses 14 and 15, for when Gentiles, who do not have the law, meaning the Mosaic law, by nature, in other words, this instinct that's been implanted in them, by God, by nature, do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. So that's why in every culture, in the history of mankind, certain things are just obviously wrong, like taking somebody else's life. And even if that culture has no specific revelation of God, that's common grace. But here's the point. Notice that this common grace that, that God gives in the light of his revelation and the, the personification of the word, which is Christ and his incarnation that came into the world, the majority of the world didn't know Jesus through this common grace. Which leads us to, I think, an important theological point about the inability of man in his own natural state, his fallen state, to actually see and understand God. We are blinded. In fact, Robert read from 2 Corinthians chapter four at the beginning of the service about how the God, lowercase g of this world, that's a reference to Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. But God, when he decides to overcome a person's blindness and save them, he opens their eyes. He goes from giving them common grace to a particular grace, and he saves them. But notice, here's what I want you to notice. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here, is that common grace is not saving grace, which should humble us. We, we need God to do something more than just make a beautiful forest or create an unbelievable starlit sky. We need more than that. We need God to break into our hardened, dead, blind hearts. The second thing that we need to see about salvation here is that heritage won't save us. Heritage won't save us. Common grace won't save us. Heritage won't save us. Look at verse 11. It says, now he's not, he's not talking about just the world in general. He's specifically now talking about Israel, ethnic Israel in the Old Testament. Verse 11, John says, he came to his own, meaning Israel, and his own people did not receive him. The Jews primarily, mostly, in fact, overwhelmingly rejected Jesus even though the witness of the prophets and the witness of John was pointing to Jesus specifically. In fact, this is what Jeremiah, an Old Testament prophet, says in the middle of Israel's rejection of God over centuries. Jeremiah, verse seven, God is speaking through the prophet and he says, from the day that your fathers, he's speaking to Israel, came out of the land of Egypt to this day. Now he miraculously rescued them. I mean, even this, you know, when people say, oh, we, we need miracles, we need miracles. To, no, our hearts are so dead that even if we see a sea open up and all of our homies walk through the sea onto dry land, our hearts are so dead and dull that even then we won't believe. 
Belief is not the accumulation of human wisdom that looks at the facts or even miracles and says, aha, this is the best decision. Belief is always and only a sovereign gift of God that he gives our dead hearts. And listen, this is, what, this is what God is saying. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all of my servants to prophets to them day after day. Yet, they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. So heritage will not save us. You can be one of God's people. You can be born in the Bible Belt South. You can grow up in Cross Point. You can have the best parents. You can have somebody preaching the gospel to you faithfully and adequately and clearly and sufficiently every day of your life. But you cannot trust in that. You, like every other person, and this is the great leveler of the human race, all of us need a sovereign act of God. Nobody sneaks into the kingdom of God because their daddy was a preacher or their mama played the piano. God may use those things. Clearly he uses means. I don't deny that for a second. I'm hoping that this room, that my family, is full of the useful means of God. But here's the great news and maybe he's just, here's the scary news, God is not obligated to use those means and God is not bound to use those means when they are absent. In other words, God can save whoever he wants, however he wants, whenever he wants. And that's glorious news. Now, just a quick side, because I, I just can't move on without saying this because this is just the way God is so glorious. Remember when we went through Romans a couple years ago? Of course you do. And remember, <laughs> by the way, that's why we preach expositionally. I don't even remember what I preached last week if it's some like clever little thing. But I know that we can look back and say, ah, oh, the message of Romans is the righteousness of God making the unrighteous righteous through Jesus Christ. You don't need to remember a clever little sermon on, that I preached on feeling good, but I want you to remember the gist of the inspired book. And when we went to Romans, Romans 9 through 11 is essentially Paul taking up this issue of the rejection of the Jews. And he's saying, don't, don't, don't be, Paul is essentially saying, don't be discouraged by this, even though not only has the world rejected Jesus, but even his own people are re have rejected him. If you're looking at that, and you're wondering, wow, has God failed? Don't think that, because God, he, he's not bound by the flesh. In fact, what it means to truly be one of God's people, to truly be spiritual Israel, is not to be of the flesh, but of Abraham's belief. And so God will gather all of his people. That's the point of Romans 9 through 11. And oh, by the way, this is just a little appendix on the end of Romans chapter 11. God is so good and so gracious that he's gonna take a great majority of those ethnic Jews and he's gonna save them as a stupendous act of his glory on some day, I think in the future, and graft them back into Christ. So praise God, God will always get all of his people. But I digress. Now, last two truths here about salvation. Let's look at verses 12 through 13. Verses 12 through 13 are really foundational. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So let's look at verse 12. Verse 12 tells us this, this third truth here about salvation is that Saving faith means receiving, and this is the language of some old confessions, the language of the Westminster Confession of Faith, the language of the old London Baptist Confession of Faith. They use this language, I love it. Saving faith means receiving and resting on Christ alone for salvation. And we need to think deeply about this, especially in a world and in a culture and in a region where many, many people say that they accepted Jesus as their 
savior just because maybe they went to a VBS when they were young or they just have a kind of distant association with a local church. What does it mean to truly receive him and believe in his name? What does it mean? Well, this is where I think we need to be Christians who stand on the shoulders of theological giants and brothers and sisters that have gone before us. So let me read to you from the well thought out statement of faith put together in America in the mid 1800s. It's called the New Hampshire Statement of Faith. It's a historical, Baptistic, reformed, historic statement of faith that is a follow on from other historic confessions, a little bit simplified so that just average people could kind of grasp it better. And this is what this very faithful, historic confession of faith says about saving faith or repentance and faith. Let me read this to you, it's really, really helpful. We believe, meaning we Christians believe, that repentance and faith are sacred duties. In other words, we must do them. It's a duty of man to repent and believe. And are also inseparable graces. In other words, where there's repentance, true repentance, there will always be faith. And where there's true faith, there will be repentance. There's like two edges of the same sword, two sides of the same coin. They're inseparable graces. Wrought in our souls or produced or brought about in our souls by the regenerating spirit of God. Whereby being deeply convinced of our guilt, danger, and helplessness, and of the way of salvation by Christ, we turn to God with unfeigned contrition, confession and supplication for mercy, at the same time heartily receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as our prophet, priest, and king, relying on him alone as the only and all-sufficient savior. Now that's a really helpful explanation of saving faith. Let me just help us think about it here. That repentance of faith, they go together, and how do they come to us? They are given to us, they're produced, they're wrought in our souls by the Spirit of God that regenerates us. In other words, our hearts are dead, and God makes us alive. He brings us back to life. That's what salvation is. And with this new born again heart, we now have received the gifts of repentance and faith whereby we, before we were unable through common grace to behold Christ, and now we are enabled to behold Christ and we now, here, listen, this is the first move of the newly born again heart. It instantly recognizes what a desperate situation it's in apart from Christ. That, that's an important point because, because modern theology is be happy, be happy, come to Jesus. He's gonna make everything awesome. When actually salvation sometimes is the awakening of the soul to the danger of the soul apart from Christ. So don't be discouraged if your first thought is, oh my gosh, I'm a wicked sinner. That's a good thought to have. Go with that thought and run to God. That's called repentance. So here we, we have this sense, we're deeply convinced of our danger outside of Christ. And we run to God with contrition, confession, and pleas for mercy. And then we rest, we receive, we trust in the ministry of Jesus, his perfect life. So we have lived a sinful life. Jesus lived a perfect life. We trust in his perfection, not our sin. We trust in his righteousness, not our unrighteousness. And here's what God does. He takes our sin and he, he removes it. He extinguishes it. He satisfies the punishment for it by Jesus' death on the cross. And then, this is so good, he gives us the righteousness of Christ. So not only do we get repentance and faith, we get the imputed God deposits, as it were, into the checking and account of our life. He takes away the negative balance and he gives us an infinitely positive balance, which is the righteousness of Christ. And we receive, we trust, we rest, we put all of our hope 
in Jesus and not ourselves. That's what it means to have saving faith. And the only way you can do that is by God first acting on your soul, which leads us to the next. So, so verse 12, let's read verse 12. Let's, I want you to follow the logic, and we're gonna land this plane here in a second. I want you to follow the logic of verse 12 and 13 because it's really important, and it's gonna come up throughout John a lot. So he's saying in verse 12, receive all who did receive him. He believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. I know, by the way, I don't have time to get into that, but not only are you justified, not only are you saved, but you're adopted into God's family. That's just glorious. That's just glorious. That has amazing implications. I think it means that you should be part of a local church. I think it means that any type of form of racism or ethnic pride or any other type of social favoritism is a wicked sin against God because we are part of the family of God and we are the children of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So, so we, just, we just look at verse 12 and it tells us all that we need to know about how we should love one another from various cultures, especially those who are in the body of Christ. But I don't have time to get into that. But notice here, he's saying, the onus is on you to receive, the onus is on you to believe, you must do it, but how do those who receive and believe in Jesus' name, how does that even come about? Well, he digs a little deeper in verse 13. He now qualifies, he, he now tells us how we can believe and have faith. Because remember, our hearts are dead. How can we believe and have faith? Well, he tells us in verse 13. Now, who are those that receive him? Who are those that believe in his name? Those who were, verse 13, born not of blood, meaning not the physical birth. He's not just talking about being a human. We're not all God, God's children. We're not all. We're all God's creation, but only those who have been reconciled to himself through his son are God's children. So who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. So the decisive thing that makes a person able to believe is not physical birth, not heritage, not even human will. The human will is not in and of itself free to choose God. The human will is enslaved by sin. So who are these people who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God? So who are those that are able to receive and rest in Christ alone? Those who are born, implication, born again spiritually, of God, which brings us to the fourth point. Saving faith that we just talked about before. Saving faith is the fruit. It's the result of, it's the consequence of being born again or being made alive, not by our will or our heritage, but by God's will. Now this is critical. If you see this, if you get this, it will strengthen your faith and deepen your worship of God, I guarantee it. Listen, let's go again to the New Hampshire Statement of Faith. 1853, paragraph seven of Grace and Regeneration. They're qualifying, they're further explaining how saving faith comes about, and this is really good news. We believe that in order to be saved, sinners must be regenerated. So notice there's a prior step than you believing. In fact, you can't believe. You're unable to believe in and of yourself. You're dead in your sins by nature. All of us are. So what happens in order for a sinner to believe and repent? Sinners must be regenerated or born again. That regeneration, that bringing back to life, that's what that word means, consists in giving. This is God doing the giving of a holy disposition to the mind that it is affected in a manner above our comprehension. In other words, we can't understand how God does this, right? This is beyond our comprehension. It's affected in a manner beyond our comprehension or understanding by the power of the Holy Spirit in connection with divine truth. What that means is a sinner who's dead in his heart, he's dead in his sin, there's no human reason why that person will repent. God in his mysterious wind that blows wherever it wills will hit that human heart with the divine truth, the news of what Jesus has done to reconcile sinners to himself and mysteriously, gloriously, miraculously, 
it brings life. So as, listen to this, back to New Hampshire, the statement, not the state, so as to secure our voluntary obedience to the gospel. So you must choose Jesus, you must have faith, it's an act of the human will, but God enables it so that you can trust in Jesus and that its proper evidence appears in the holy fruits of repentance and faith and the newness of life. Now let's not believe this because some Christians in the mid-1800s up in Yankee land wrote it. Let's believe it because the Holy Spirit wrote it in Ephesians chapter two. Listen to verses four through six. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. That's a wonderful line. So the, the grounds, the reason that God moves upon a human heart to save it, the reason God gives somebody faith is not based on anything other than his love for that person. Not because they're Jew, not because they're of some church, not because, they, not because they've got some gift. He, the grounding, the cause of God's mercy is the great love with which he loved his people. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, meaning God's not responding to anything, God's not looking for faith, he makes faith where there is no faith, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So he takes a dead heart, he makes it alive, and the gifts that he gives that dead heart is faith and repentance so that dead heart can behold and trust in Jesus and he takes that dead heart that's now alive and he makes it a child of God, puts it in the family and now calls that dead heart now made alive to live a life with other believers so that it would be a witness so that he can use that life to bring others to life for his glory. <laughs> and that's why Paul says, by grace, you have been saved by grace. It's not your own doing. If you see that, if you really see that, the implications will fuel the Christian life. I end with this. Why should we be encouraged by this? Why do we need to see this? Because when you see this, you realize that the good news really is good news. Here's our instinct. Our instinct is, our instinct is, is to view things negatively. Well, wait, wait a minute. You mean salvation is entirely up to God? Yes. Well then, what about those that God doesn't save? Wait, 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 wait. wait. We, inst we instinctively think of it negatively. Friends, that's just our fallen nature rearing its ugly head. Think of it positively. The good news now is truly good news because God doesn't need anything in your spiritually lost loved one. He doesn't need anything in them to save them. God is able to save the worst of people. Flip it around and view it positively through the lens of God's rich mercy, which is much bigger than our hope for our loved ones to come to Jesus. His mercy is deeper than our goodwill. And he is able to save to the uttermost. Nobody's outside of his reach. Nobody is not a candidate for grace. God can save anyone. His arm is not too short. His ear is not dull. This also should encourage us to share the gospel. It's the power of God and the salvation. God is pleased to take his word and to use it to bring life to a dead heart. Not cool stuff, not beautiful people on stage, not fancy websites, not relevant topical preaching, not cool graphics, not awesome websites. God saves people through the power of his word that goes out, hits a dead heart, and brings life. 
And it's God's prerogative as to how to use that. We're the pot, he's the potter. We're the clay. And this should encourage us. Spurgeon famously said, look, God's got a people. God's got a people. But I don't know who they are. They don't wear ribbons on their coat. So I'm just gonna throw the gospel out. I'm just gonna give seed away and God will do what he will do with his word. Why else should we be encouraged about this? Because it completely humbles us. It completely humbles us. We, and we need that. We're arrogant. Come on now, we're arrogant people. <laughs> we scroll through Facebook. We look at all of our knuckle-headed friends who say dumb things. We secretly judge them. We watch the news. We shake our head at the clowns in the opposing political party. We have opinions that we just accumulate and we just think we're pretty smart. We just think we're pretty smart. And wouldn't it be wonderful? Wouldn't it be wonderful if everybody just had the same opinions as us? And we can just kind of go in a rhythm like that and we can sort of transport that into the spiritual life and then we end up becoming like that Pharisee that's praying on the street corner and he says, oh, 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 thank God I am not like those bozos over there. That's sort of the subconscious default of my soul, amen? And maybe yours too. Anybody else? And when we see this, it reminds us of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, no, no, God didn't choose you because you were of noble birth or because you were smart or because you were this and that. No, no, no. You were a complete fool. And God showed his wisdom in saving a complete knucklehead like you. And it should humble us. And it should make us completely dependent on God. And that's a great place to be. As Doug exhorted us at the beginning, we should hope in his steadfast love. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, use my feeble words to help my friends and my brothers and sisters receive and rest in Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.